right. Let's cover way too much territory in 45 minutes. Tribulation and rapture. So we just finished considering Daniel 12.1, God's final deliverance of his people. And we saw that this doesn't happen until they first experience a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. So there's a terrible ruler right before Jesus comes again. There's also a terrible time right before Jesus comes again. So let's try to talk about that. Just touch on a little bit of what the Bible says about that, <clears throat> that time of trouble. So first of all, some names for it. So here in chapter 12, verse 1, it's called a time of trouble. Human history is full of trouble. But verse 1 says that for Israel, this is a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. And Israel had been through a lot of horrible things already. And yet God revealed to Daniel there'd be an even worse time of trouble. Jeremiah 30 calls it a time of distress for Jacob and says that day is so great there is none like it. So the worst time ever. But the most commonly used word is for this time period is that word tribulation. Um, and literally that is the Greek word for pressure, but then it's used in the New Testament figuratively for trouble that inflicts, it, that in, that inflicts distress. So words like oppression, affliction, tribulation. Jesus and John use that word. Jesus said, Matthew 24, there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Great tribulation. Um, and there's discussion about whether great tribulation is just part of this time period. Um, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure that's super clear scripturally. Regardless, Jesus says great tribulation and not just for Israel, right? But the way Jesus says it makes it sounds like it's going to be the worst time the world's ever experienced. And a few verses later, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So the worst tribulation the world will ever experience will come just before Jesus comes again. The Apostle John also used that word tribulation, Revelation chapter 7. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So those are probably people who die for Christ during the great tribulation. And then there's also a possible reference to this in Revelation 3.10. It's, it's kind of disputed, but Jesus makes this promise to the church in, in Philadelphia because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there's some debate about that verse, but there's a chance that's referring to the same time when it calls it an hour of trial to try those who dwell on the earth. So those are some names. What Daniel calls a time of trouble Seems to be the same thing that Jeremiah calls a time of distress for Israel, which seems to be the same thing as Jesus describes as an unprecedented great tribulation for the world right before he returns. 
And that will then connect to the plagues and judgments and so forth in the book of Revelation. So, who is involved in this time of tribulation? Well, we saw already in Daniel 12.1 that Israel is definitely involved, and Jeremiah calls it Israel's, Jacob's distress. Um, that's what we'd expect after everything we've learned in Daniel about the terrible final ruler and what he does in Jerusalem. But we also saw from the words of Jesus and John that this tribulation comes upon the whole world. So, the tribulation in a special sense is about Israel, and in a very in a big sense, it's about the whole world. And so the question that remains then is whether or not Christians are going to enter into this tribulation period. Are Christians raptured away before the tribulation, or are they raptured away partway through the tribulation, or do they go through the tribulation just like everyone else? So I'm going to comment briefly on that later and definitely not resolve it. I lied when I said that earlier. Um, the whole world experiences this time. Israel's a special focus. Okay, let's consider. Let's continue to consider some of the events and purposes. And there could be more things in this list. I'm going to try to keep this super simple um, and just stay focused on the main things. And then we're going to look at a key verse in Daniel 12. If you don't have your Bible out yet, we are going to. I'm going to show us a couple things in Daniel 12 that we're not going to talk about in detail in future sermons. So you'll want to make sure you have your Bible out and can see that. So what are the events and purposes of this time? So first of all, from our study of Daniel thus far, we know that one of the most important events of this tribulation is the reign of the final terrible ruler. So all the things we've learned about him, almost all those things happen during this time. The battles that he wages with the king of the south and other kings, his position in the land of Israel, his persecution of God's people, um, his deception, his blasphemy, his defilement of the temple. Um, all those things seem to be tribulation events. And of course, if we went to Revelation, then we would also know that how much Satan's involved in that. And there's also this false prophet alongside and, and so forth. We've also learned in Daniel that the kingdom of the Antichrist devours the whole earth and tramples it down and breaks it to pieces. That's Daniel 7. It's described as different from all the kingdoms, probably the worst ever. So I think we can say the tribulation will involve the world's worst ruler and the world's worst government. And then it also includes what Revelation 12 calls Satan's great wrath. I referred to that earlier when he's cast down out of heaven after that battle with Michael, Revelation 12. <clears throat> but all these events are ultimately from the hand of God, and so the Bible says that it will be a time of God's wrath and judgment on the world. There are aspects of the tribulation that are the result of man's wrath, including lots of wars. But all of those things ultimately are from God, and there are many plagues and judgments that are directly from God. Revelation six seventeen, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? There is a day coming when the great day of God's wrath is, is poured out on earth. Jesus describes it like a harvest in the bad sense, like the harvest 
the, the wickedness on the earth grows to such a point that God sends his angels to harvest it. Revelation 14, verse 15, the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, which is not a good thing. That's not talking about the good harvest of God's people. So it's a time of terrible judgment. You know, it's interesting that the, the, when you read the plagues and the, the magnitude of death in Revelation, you might, you might think, wow, it's hard to even imagine that. And then you see an earthquake like this one we just saw, and you think, well, maybe it's not so hard to imagine. Or some of these typhoons in Southeast Asia. Like, what would happen if the earthquake we just saw, if that transfer of energy in that earthquake did happen to just go in a right way to affect another fault and cause a 7.8 earthquake on another fault in another area, which then just transferred enough energy in the right direction? What if, what if you had like four of those that triggered each other? What level um, of, of devastation could you have? I'm not, I'm not saying that we just have to have natural explanations because the things God does in Revelation are often supernatural. But my point is the level of destruction that you see in Revelation isn't actually unheard of in what we see in human events. It will just be even further than what we've ever seen. Plus, you can factor into that the kind of modern warfare and modern weapons that we've got. And... Um, mass human death does not look um, so far-fetched at all. So these are some of the things that the Bible seems to point to in a future tribulation. Um, and I'll just, I, I'll just, I don't want to get off on this, but I'll just pause and say I, I realize that we have Christian brothers and sisters who believe that the events of the tribulation already happened in the first century um, leading up to eighty seventy, or that they are happening throughout the church age. Um, and uh, I respect that. I just cannot do that with Scripture. And what's interesting is, even those who say that, um, and Piper talks about this in his book, he talks about Sam Storms, even those who say there was first century fulfillment will often say, yeah, and it's also possible that there might be a later fulfillment of these same things. <laughs> um, so there's no, there's no sense in which you need to feel like you're one of the weird people if you believe in a future tribulation and Antichrist. There is nothing biblically weird about that. There's nothing biblically obscure about that. That's pretty clear, direct Bible. Worst time the world's ever seen before Jesus comes again. Worst ruler the world's ever seen before Jesus comes again. Um, so... I know that we have brothers and sisters who see all of that coming, happening in the first century, um, but our, our church's doctrinal statement is premillennial, and so we will uh, continue to teach a, a future fulfillment of these things. And again, I just can't emphasize enough, it's not like some bizarre or weird view we're teaching here. It's pretty simple Bible, pretty clear, pretty clear Bible. So we're talking about events during the tribulation, and... The Bible, while describing all those horrific things also, and this is what it's easy to miss, also indicates that the tribulation will be a time of evangelism and then salvation. Evangelism. I mean, we don't know exactly how this works, but we know that you get 144,000 servants of God in Revelation chapter 7. You have these martyrs that we just read about who come out of great tribulation to the throne of God. They conquered the devil by the word of their testimony, it says. 
you have these two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days. And then there are also some hints in other prophets. I put the references there in Zephaniah, Zechariah, and Isaiah about Gentile salvation during the tribulation or at the very end of the, tri- of the tribulation. So there's a lot of evangelism going on during the tribulation. Tragically, two different times in Revelation, it says that despite the judgment sent by God, the people will not repent. So there will also be a tremendous hardness of heart for many people, and even the most severe of the plagues will have no impact upon their willingness to repent. But some will, at least hundreds of thousands. And most interesting of all is the possibility that we talked about already this morning, that it is a time for a salvation for the remnant of Israel. This is actually a huge theme in the Bible. And even though Christians have some disagreements about it, it, it's it's a big and important theme. And in We're studying Daniel, so the main thing we want to see here is we want to go back to Daniel 9 and we want to remember the 77s from Daniel chapter 9. Okay? So as Daniel 9 begins, do you guys have a page turn? Can I see this handout? Okay, so... Remember that Daniel lived in Babylon because Israel had been so unfaithful to God for so long and God finally fulfilled his warnings and sent them into exile. It seemed like Israel was basically obliterated from existence. Yet God's ultimate purpose was to restore them to himself. Even the exile was part of his restoring work among his people. And so Daniel's reading the words of Jeremiah. He sees these 70 years He sees the end of that coming, but he knows Israel is not spiritually restored to their God. And so, yes, Cyrus sends them back to their land, but there has got to be more to come. And God tells him, right, it's going to be 77s. And Daniel 9, 24, you have there on your handout, 70 weeks, 77s are decreed about your people in your holy city. And here's what God's going to do by the end of that time to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So at the end of the 77s, everything would be made right. Daniel's people would be made right. Jerusalem would be made right. And the first 69 of those sevens, the first 483 years, lead right up to the time of Jesus. And we talked about the the accuracy of that time frame. But then the 70th seven, the last seven years of what God's going to do to make this happen, don't seem to come until right before Jesus comes again, the second time. So there's got to be a gap in between because that last seven concludes with the second coming of Jesus. So Daniel's 70th period of seven years is probably the same thing as the time of trouble, the time of distress, the tribulation that we're talking about. Or at least there's some overlap of those two things. Daniel 12, we just saw verse 1, right? It's there in your handout again. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be 
delivered. Take, take the word, if you've got a pen there, you could take the word delivered in Daniel 12.1 and circle it. And then you could circle the reference above it, Daniel 9.24, and draw a line between the two things. The deliverance in Daniel 12.1 is central to the fulfillment of all that God said he was going to do by the end of the 77s in Daniel 9.24. There are a lot of references there in your notes about other passages that may, may talk about the same thing, this salvation of Israel. So I think there is a remnant of Israel that is saved at the end of the tribulation. All right. Hopefully that makes some sense. And in the last service, I explained how I think that works. Spiritual first, physical second. They come in faith to Christ. They repent of their sin. And then Jesus comes again and rescues them from the Antichrist. Unfortunately, it's only the remnant of Israel that's left after huge numbers of them and the human population has died but that seems to be what the Bible describes. Okay, now before we move on from that, so evangelism and the salvation of a remnant of Israel, there's something in Daniel 12 that we need to see. Um, so look at Daniel 12. at. So the revelation ends in verse 4. And verse 5 says, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And so those are probably angels, is my guess. Verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. Do you remember him from Daniel 10? We said that's probably Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Daniel lifts his eyes up and sees this one who is just unmatched in his glory and splendor. So, so now the, it seems like the angels or whoever the two people are in verse 5 ask the Son of God, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? You see that there in verse, the end of verse 6? How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And that word wonders, that Hebrew word, can refer to like really exciting good things. But that same word can also refer to like startling, astonishing kind of things, which is what it means here. Not wonderful things in a good sense, but, but these startling things that Daniel's le- learning about. How long will it be till the end of these things? Verse 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, We'll talk about that in a minute, but keep going in verse 7. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Okay, look at that phrase. The shattering of the power of the holy people. So there is another purpose for the tribulation. The events of the tribulation are used by God for the shattering of the power of the holy people. Now, that's a a vague enough phrase that there's a lot of different ideas about what that means. And there are some other possibly relevant passages I listed in your notes. But 
what's interesting is the possible connection between the shattering of the power of the holy people and the salvation of the remnant of the holy people. In other words, the possibility that when it says the shattering of the power of the holy people, that it's referring to the way in which God humbles Israel through the events of the tribulation in a way that brings them to the point where they're ready to welcome their Messiah and believe in him. That is one possible understanding of what the shattering of the power of the holy people means. Jesus said, I know I referenced it earlier, but Jesus said in Matthew 23, 38 and 39, he comes to Jerusalem and he says, basically, Jerusalem is unwilling to receive me. He's weeping over Jerusalem. And then he says he would come again and the inhabitants of Jerusalem would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How do we get to the point where the Jews say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to Jesus as he returns? And part of the answer might be the shattering of the power of the holy people, which God then uses to work this great revival and bring them to salvation. Okay, so those are some of the events that happened during the tribulation, some of the purposes of that time. So we could just pause and ask this. What, what would we learn from the fact that there's a tribulation like this? What lessons could we learn? Well, uh, the tribulation reminds us that sin is terrible, that sin has terrible consequences, that sin will continue to get worse and the consequences of sin will continue to multiply. I think the tribulation shows us all those things. It also reminds us that God is just and God will not be mocked. And I think this is something that I've just understood more as I've worked on these things. God can bring tremendous suffering and judgment for sin, not just in hell, but also on this earth. I think I most often think of it in hell But the tribulation is going to be a little foretaste of hell on earth. It is God's wrath and judgment poured out on sin. The great day of his wrath has come. And God will do that to demonstrate his power and justice and the wages of sin. He will be demonstrating how severe sin is to a world that just plays with it and thinks it's a game and a joke and who cares. But then the other thing we see from the tribulation is that God is a merciful God offering salvation all the way to the very end. Isn't that so good? So good. And again, I feel like the salvation part of the tribulation is often left out. We just get caught up in plagues or whatever, and we miss the fact that God is going to do a great saving work because he is merciful to the last moment. All right, those are some... Uh, purposes and events for the tribulation. And so now let's talk about time. How long is the tribulation? Well, we know that there is a seven-year period because of Daniel's 70th week. So there's the seven-year period that's important. Whether we should call that whole thing the tribulation or whether we should just call half of it the tribulation, I don't know. Most people call the whole thing the tribulation, which is fine. Daniel and Revelation, there are many references to a time period of three and a half years. In other words, there's, only, there's basically only the one reference to seven years 
in Daniel's 70th seven. All the other references are to three and a half years, which is why it seems like that may be the best thing to call the tribulation, the last, the last half of it. So um, there will be a God-ordained seven-year time period, and within that, a God-ordained three-and-a-half-year time period. And so did I put this here? Yeah. Okay, so Daniel 7, 25. The saints are given into the hand of the terrible fourth kingdom ruler for a time, times, and half a time which sounds like three and a half. Daniel 9, 27. 69 periods of seven years plus one period of seven years. The terrible ruler shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So there's three and a half again. Daniel 12, 7. The time of trouble followed by deliverance will be for a time, times, and half a time. That's the verse we just read about the shattering of the power of the holy people. Daniel 12:11 From the time that the regular bird offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up there shall be 1290 days which is either a little bit less than three and a half years of 365 day years or a little bit more than three and a half years of 360 day years. Daniel 12, 11, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, um, which again is a little bit more than three and a half years. And there are lots of guesses about the 1,290 days and 1,335 days, um, but they're guesses. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, Daniel, or Revelation 11 the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. Two witnesses will prophesy for 1,260 days. So that's why, and we talked about this earlier in the series, but that's why sometimes in these numbers we talk about 360-day years because that seems to be what you have there. 42 months seems to be the same thing as 1,260 days. Revelation 12, the woman Israel flees into the wilderness to be nourished for 1,260 days. A time, times, and half a time. There it is again. <laughs> and Revelation 13, the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That is a lot of references, isn't it? So again, that's why I'm, I'm trying to make the point that I understand there are some Christians who would, who would take all those numbers just figuratively, um, not as actual numbers referring to an actual time frame. But there's nothing strange about looking at those numbers and saying, sounds like a time frame to me, um, when it's emphasized that strongly, that repeatedly in that many different places. And when you have 1,260, 1,290, 1,335, um, even if though we don't know exactly what those numbers mean, there's a lot of, there's a precision going on here in what God knows he's, he's going to do. So, it seems like the tribulation is a specific period of time, Daniel's 70th week of seven years, but especially three and a half years, right before Jesus' second coming. And if you look in Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12, you, we can see that the point here is the endurance, the need for the endurance of the saints. Daniel 12, verse 11 and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away 
and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. So that wording seems to say the saints have got to endure through these most horrible things all the way to the end. Right? Strong evidence for Daniel's 70th week, seven years still in the future. Lots of references to a key three and a half year time period of intense tribulation just before Jesus comes again. All right, so that leads us finally then to the question mentioned earlier about who's going to be involved in the tribulation. Does the Christian church enter into the tribulation or not? Is it possible that some of us might live through the tribulation or is there a rapture of the church first so that at the beginning of the tribulation only unbelievers are left behind? Um, If the tribulation is focused on Israel, is it possible that the Christian church is removed from the earth first? So you probably are aware that there's a lot of discussion and a lot of disagreement about this. And if it's something you're interested in, the best place to start is the book in the Zondervan Counterpoint series that's called Three Views on the Rapture. There have been two different editions of it with a different set of authors, and they're both good. They're both worth reading. Um, And that is really the best way to study this. With your Bible open, you just take your Bible and you take that, and as they argue for a different view of the rapture, you just look at the passages that they're using as their, as their proof. And um, if you just read that with your Bible open, it's, it's, it's just it's really the way to study this. So I'm just going to mention a couple things. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So this is the passage that the word rapture ends up coming from through the Latin in between. 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So you see the little phrase, caught up? That translates a Greek word that I probably put in your notes, did I? Yeah, that means to grab or seize suddenly so as to remove or gain control. So it's translated things like snatch or take away. So from the Latin of that word, we end up with our English word rapture. So the question is, is that passage describing something that happens before the second coming of Jesus? Is 1 Thessalonians 4 describing a snatching away that takes the Christians to heaven sometime before Jesus comes back to earth? Or does that happen when Jesus comes back to earth at the second coming? And it's just a tough question for a couple of reasons. First of all, there are, there are passages that seem to suggest the saints, like this one and John 14, that seem to suggest the saints meeting the Lord in the air and then returning to heaven with him. You know, Jesus said in John 14 that he would come and take us to be with him. But then Revelation describes Jesus coming down to earth with the saints at the second coming. So are we, are we caught up to meet him in the clouds as he comes down and then we come to earth with him in the second coming? Or are we 
caught up to meet him, taken to heaven, and then time passes, and then later he comes in the second coming? Um, That's one question. But the bigger challenge is probably this. Some passages, like we've seen over and over again in Daniel, talk about events that happen shortly before Jesus comes again, including that worst ruler and worst kingdom ever. But then Jesus said, that we must remain vigilant because we don't know the day or the hour when he's going to come again. And so he said, we have to be, we have to watch, be awake, be alert, and be ready because we don't know when the appointed time will come. So this is the question that has led to all of the interesting discussions between Christians How can there be all these events that take place before Jesus comes again, and yet he comes unexpectedly and suddenly? How do you put together those two truths? And there are several possible answers, but one way you could put those things together is by saying that Jesus comes in two phases. He comes suddenly and unexpectedly for the church at the rapture, which could happen at any time. And then he comes to earth in the second coming, and many signs lead up to that second coming though no one will know the exact day or hour of it. So if you, one of the key reasons why some Christians have believed in a rapture before the tribulation is because of the belief that the Bible teaches Jesus could come at any time. Um, and so there must be a rapture first. Um, now, there are other ways to understand what Jesus said about no one knowing the day or the hour, and you need to be watching and learning. That's... but but. That's, that's a key reason for rapture teaching. Um, another key reason why some Christians believe in a rapture earlier than the second coming of Christ, before the tribulation, is because of the possibility that God promised us, the New Testament church, that we wouldn't have to go through the tribulation because it's a time of God's wrath, and that God promised the church they wouldn't have to experience that pouring out of his wrath on earth. Revelation 3.10 is the controversial verse about that. And it's where we read this earlier. He says, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there's just disagreement about whether you should understand that as a specific promise for the church in Philadelphia or a broad promise to all Christians about the future tribulation. Um, And Christians just disagree about it. Another key passage is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There's a lot in that passage, but the the reason why it's 
important in these discussions is that it makes, first of all, it sounds like in verse 1, the coming of Christ and our gathering together with him happen together. And then as it continues, it sounds like that won't happen until after the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation. So you can see how this could end up being kind of like an argument, right? Someone can say, there's a rapture before the tribulation because of Revelation 3.10. And someone else can say, no, Revelation 3.10 isn't talking about worldwide tribulation and a promise to everybody. And Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the coming of our Lord Jesus and gathering together happened at the same time before the Antichrist comes. And the other person says, yeah, but the Bible says that Jesus could come again at any time and you've got to be ready. That's how it goes in the tribulation discussion, back and forth like that. So, you're waiting for what I'm going to say next. That's what I'm going to say. That's how it goes. That's what we've got. We don't have anything more than what the Bible tells us. And it's okay to say, that's all we got. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. Because God told us everything we need to know and not anything we don't need to know. And so our, there's a reason why our church doctrinal statement was written to be premillennial, but not pre-tribulational. It doesn't take a position on the timing of the rapture because it's no problem to disagree about that. Now, honestly, there can be disagreements about a millennium too, but our church is, you, you've, a church has got to either teach a pre-mill position or not. You can't, you can't teach everything. It affects too much. So our doctrinal statement is premillennial, which simply means we believe that Jesus is going to come again and reign on earth in the future. But it doesn't take a position on the rapture. You don't have to hold to a particular rapture view to be part of the membership of our church. But here are the three major views. First, the pre-tribulation view would be that there's a rapture of the saints approximately seven years before the second coming of Christ to earth. Before the seven years... The saints are, the church is taken to heaven. Then there's the pre-wrath view, which you could also think of as being like mid-trib. That would say that it's that last three and a half years that's the focus, and that's the time of God's wrath. And so maybe there's a rapture before that three and a half years if God promised to keep the church from experiencing that wrath. And then there's the post-tribulation view, which basically means that the rapture and the second coming happen in the same event. It's all part of one bundle that happens at the same time as Jesus comes again. And each of those views has its strengths and weaknesses. And then there are a whole variety of more minor views, like, um, like, um, like the view that God raptures those believers who are watching and waiting for his appearing. They're ready for his appearing, but not all believers. Um, so that's just an example of another one of the variety of views. There are, there are several of them. And again, the best way to study it is to get three views on the, rap- on, on the rapture and read it with your Bible open. But it's okay for you to have a strong conviction about the rapture it's okay for you to not have a strong conviction about the rapture. What you have to have strong convictions about are the next two things on your handouts. No matter what you conclude about the rapture, you must be ready for Christ to come again at any time. 
the New Testament makes it so clear that Christians are supposed to be watching, waiting, eagerly hoping that Jesus might be coming again now, right away, today. And whatever you believe about the rapture shouldn't change your eagerness for Jesus to come again as soon as possible. Now. And number two, no matter what you conclude about the rapture, you must be ready to be faithful to Christ even if you have to face the world's worst government and ruler. Even if you have to face the world's worst government and ruler. In other words, we can't say, I believe that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Therefore, I don't have to worry about any of this stuff in Daniel. Right? That would be a really terrible way to think about it. And we've seen one of the reasons why that's the case, because we've emphasized in Daniel that the things Daniel shows us about the end are also things that Daniel shows us happen over and over again in human history. So you may not have to face the worst ruler ever if there's a rapture first or if it's later after your life, but you're probably going to have to face some terrible rulers along the way, right? Most believers will. You may not have to live under the authority of the worst government ever, but you're probably going to have to live under the authority of some bad governments along the way. So there's no sense in which what we believe about the rapture allows us to take the biblical teaching about tribulation and say, whew, good thing I don't have to be ready for that. What we should say is, I would love for my heart to be ready for that. That's what our desire should be. That's what our attitude should be. The, the, the heart that would want to be able to be faithful to the Lord and even die for the Lord under the worst government and worst ruler ever. So I think those are the two bottom lines. Let's seek to be prepared for Jesus to come again at any time, and let's seek to be prepared to face even the world's most terrible governments and rulers and still be faithful to Christ. That's what we can all agree on, and we can disagree about the rapture. And for those of you who are deeply convinced about a pre-tribulational rapture, I love you, and I so much hope you're right. Whether I agree with you or not, I'm not certain. I, to be completely frank with you, I have worked through these things a couple different times in depth now, and I'm still just not entirely persuaded by <laughs> any of them uh, quite yet. I have a slight leaning, but these are the things that matter. So, Okay. 11.42. No time for questions. Okay. Um, <laughs> did you notice I was slowing down and repeating myself there at the end? <laughs> um, no, if you have questions, when this finishes, come up and talk to me. I would love to do that. But um, remember, we want to get that rotation ready for cleaning at birth choice here right away. So if any of you have interest in that, want to know more about that, might be willing to help with that, come talk to Tim and Lisa right away. They're right here. All right. And ask them your questions about the rapture. Yes. Pastor Eric. Yes. Well, I, I left out a lot of passages. I was just, all I was trying to do was just give some samples of the kind of passages that, um, relate to that are involved in the debate. But 1 Thessalonians 5 says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
while people are... Oh, right. I wasn't trying to not include passages. All I was trying to do is just give samples of some of the the kind of passages that are factored into the discussion about whether there is a rapture. When I the last time I taught on this, I took boxes and I set them on the pulpit and I took passages and we talked about what happens if you put this passage in this box versus what happens if you put this passage in this box. Because that's really the way, what you're pointing out is that's the way the discussion works. Believers disagree because one believer takes this passage and applies it to the second coming while another applies it to the beginning of the tribulation. Same passage um, connected two different places. So the same thing is with the wrath. Um, it, it was the end of Prophecy Conference in 2011. Uh, so it's 2011. I don't have, I don't remember more specifically than that. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the confidence we can have that you're going to keep all of your promises to your people and that you're going to protect your people. And so we're very thankful for those things. At the same time, we want to be ready for you to come back. And we want to be ready to live under whatever governments and rulers you may have us live under. So while we wait for Jesus to come again, help us to be stirred up in our hearts with zeal to be faithful to you, to be loyal to you no matter what, And part of that faithfulness is just longing for you to come again. Oh, that day from when freed from sinning, we will see your lovely face as we sang this morning. Please stir our hearts toward those things. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.